Hi, before I start this week's episode, just a quick note to thank the photographer who created the image on the podcast cover art. That's Sora Shimazaki at Pexels. And that if you'd rather read this podcast with clickable links, then it's available as an ebook for instant download on Kindle. Just search for Financial Crime Weekly, scroll past the sponsored ads, and you'll find it there. Now, let's get started. Chris Copride. If I was hoping for a quiet week in the run-up to the Easter holiday in the UK, I think I was being a little naive. It's been a busy one. This week's roundup of all things financial crime looks at sanctions once again, tops the list of stories with more action being taken globally following the Russian invasion of Ukraine. News this week of action taken by Microsoft to close down domains associated with cyber attacks, possible trouble for the Financial Conduct Authority. The International Monetary Fund assesses the United Kingdom's financial system looking at its vulnerabilities to financial crime and a couple of bribery convictions in the US and the UK, together with much more. So let's crack on. Let's start with sanctions in the US and the UK. Yet more on Russian sanctions this week. Last week we covered news of the problems of VTB Capital, the UK-based investment unit of the Russian JSC VTB Bank. It was reported that the bank had applied to have Tenio Financial Advisory administrators to bring about an orderly winding up of its functions. Well, to facilitate this process, the Office of Financial Sanctions Implementation, OFSI, has amended two general licenses under Regulation 64 of the Russia Sanctions Regulations 2022. These will allow payments relating to the insolvency of VTB to be made. Licenses are, of course, available on the government website. In further news, following reports of yet another Russian atrocity, this time the rocket attack on civilians queuing to be evacuated by train from Kramatorsk in eastern Ukraine, the UK government has responded with yet more sanctions on individuals allied or associated with the Putin regime. This time, a further 206 Putinistas, including 178 Russian separatists involved in propping up the self-proclaimed republics in Luhansk and Donetsk, have found themselves subject to sanctions. The updated list is, of course, available on the UK government website. Staying in the UK, on 12th of April, the Financial Conduct Authority updated its information for firms in relation to financial sanctions notifications. The guidance issued initially on 22nd of February, shortly after the Russian invasion, sets out the Financial Conduct Authority's expectations on the circumstances in which firms ought to contact the Office of Financial Sanctions Implementation and the FCA where they know or suspect there is a breach of sanctions which have been imposed on individuals or entities. The information is available, as you'd expect, on the FCA website. Away from these shores, the US Department of the Treasury has announced further sanctions on Russian-owned state businesses with Alrosa and United Shipbuilding Corporation, USC, being the targets on this occasion. Alrosa, no, I hadn't heard of it either, is the world's largest diamond mining company, accounting for some 28% of the market, while USC's primary concern is the development and construction of Russian naval vessels. Relevant this week, of course, because of the sinking of the Moskva, the pride of the Black Sea Russian fleet. The sanctions are extensive and likely to cause a significant hindrance to operations, and in particular in the case of Alrosa, 
will likely result in a spike in diamond prices in the short to medium term. Alrosa has already been sanctioned by the United Kingdom and Canada, among other nations. In a bit of tit-for-tat on the sanctions front, the Russian Foreign Ministry has sanctioned 398 members of the Russian uh, sorry, <laughs> of the House of Representatives of the U.S. Congress. Uh, this is in response to the U.S. sanctions imposed by the regime of George Biden. At least that's what Google Translate told me it said. Anyway, this will shock nobody, and frankly, if any of these individuals on the list have dealings with Russia following the invasion of Ukraine, they deserve all that's coming to them. Stepping away from Russian sanctions, we shouldn't forget that the U.S. has a long history of imposition of sanctions across the globe, and almost in a don't-forget-about-us kind of way, up pops a story about sanctions on North Korea. The U.S. Department of Justice has announced that Virgil Griffith, a U.S. citizen whose parents either loved Thunderbirds or epic poetry, has been sentenced to 63 months imprisonment and fined $100,000 after pleading guilty to providing professional services to North Korea in the form of technical advice on using cryptocurrency and blockchain technology to evade sanctions. Looking now at European Union sanctions, there's a couple of interesting sort of related stories that have come up this week and they consider the impact of the sanctions on Russia and some of its allies. The first comes from the European Union, where the Commission has reported that its Freeze and Seize Task Force, formed in March in response to the Russian invasion, has frozen assets valued at 29.5 billion euros owned by Russian and Belarusian oligarchs. A broad range of assets have been frozen, including super yachts, helicopters, real estate and artwork, the traditional assets of the oligarch about town. Additionally, transactions valued at around 196 billion euros have been stopped. The task force will meet regularly with the next meeting scheduled for April 22nd, so cancel your plans and get that date in your diary. Staying with the EU, on the 11th of April, Europol, in coordinated action with EU member states, Eurojust and Frontex launched Operation Oscar, an operation aimed at targeting the criminal assets of individuals and entities subject to the EU sanctions regime, which was triggered by the invasion. Uh, the action will last for a period of at least a year and focus on coordination in terms of information and intelligence exchange, always crucial in successful, in successful international action. The EU agencies in the coordinated action will naturally work to their strengths. Eurojust, which is the EU's agency for criminal justice coordination, will provide legal assistance and support, while Frontex, the European Border and Coast Guard Agency, will monitor and scrutinise those crossing the EU's external borders. One final note about EU sanctions, namely that the Swiss have adopted the latest round of EU sanctions in full, almost. The sanctions covering the importation of coal, wood and chemicals omitted importation by road and sea, given first that EU member states surround Switzerland, making road passage impossible, and secondly, its lack of a coastline, making sea passage of goods to Switzerland tricky even for the most skilled boatsmen. To end this week's discussion on the EU and Ukraine conflict, we look at two humanitarian aspects of the crisis. First, the EU's Permanent Representative Committee, CORPA, has backed a recommendation of the Council of the European Union to convert, now this will be a challenge, uh, I think it's Hervinia, which is the basic monetary unit of Ukraine, into banknotes of the currency of the EU member states, where those fleeing the conflict are residing at present. 
The scheme, which will be in place for a minimum of three months, allows all displaced Ukrainians, including children, to exchange up to 10,000 hervinias, which is approximately 310 euros per person. The exchange will be exempt from any of the typical charges and it will be at the official exchange rate as published by the National Bank of Ukraine. The Council recommendation and the Commission proposal are both available on Europa, which is the website of the EU. The second story relates to exemptions carved out of EU sanctions regimes for those agencies such as the International Committee of the Red Cross and the UN, uh, undertaking humanitarian efforts in non-governmental control regions of Ukraine, particularly the Donetsk and Luhansk oblasts. Uh, humanitarian organizations are exempted from export restrictions and the prohibition on the provision of services in these regions so long as the functions carried out are exclusively for humanitarian purposes. A sensible exemption which, where agencies are permitted to do their work, should provide much needed relief to those impacted by the conflict on those regions. Before I turn away from sanctions, I just want to consider something in relation to the impact of sanctions and what they're having on the day-to-day -day lives of Russian people and, I suppose, others related to dealings with Russia. So linked to the story and highlighted across the press this week has been the impact of sanctions on the Russian economy. The Institute of International Finance has reported that the Russian economy will contract by 18%, having previously forecast that it would grow by 3% before the invasion of Ukraine. If this forecast proves or becomes a reality, many governmental and global organisations predict that it will be Russia's worst, re worst recession since the collapse of the Soviet Union. The sanctions are impacting the Russian economy across all sectors. Manufacturing has seen a decline comparable with the start of the pandemic, with an associated drop in employment in the sector. Particularly affected are foreign car makers operating in Russia, where they struggle to import spare parts following the imposition of sanctions. The same is also true of the airline industry, where spare parts are becoming hard to come by, with the effect that planes are grounded. At the moment, it's largely civil aviation, but this may also begin to affect military aviation, although this largely depends on the size of any stockpile Putin was able to amass in advance of the invasion. At a more prosaic level, shops have begun to experience empty shelves, a state of the nation reminiscent of the days of the Soviet Union. Nostalgia isn't what it used to be. Flippancy aside, there is a serious note to all this, and it can be counted in the human impact of the sanctions. Yes, the oligarchs have lost a few lustrous super yachts and gaudy works of art, but it is the ordinary Russian folk bearing the brunt of the sanctions, and it was ever thus with sanctions. It isn't those in power, whether in Russia, North Korea or Iran, who bear the brunt of sanctions, but the ordinary folk. For their sake, as well as for the sake of the Ukrainian people, this war needs to end. Indeed, a dash of regime change would not be unwelcome. There is, I suppose, another linked story to this this week, and it concerns Microsoft and cyber, cyber attacks. It's not entirely about sanctions, but it is linked. Microsoft has announced that following a court order, it has taken control of seven domain names linked to cyber attacks by Strontium, which is an agency allied to the Russian GRU, which is its foreign military intelligence agency. These cyber attacks were allegedly carried out on Ukraine's government and its critical infrastructure. The domains were redirected to a Microsoft-controlled sinkhole where it may be possible to analyze their use. 
Use of sinkholes in this context is not uncommon in enabling malicious activity to be redirected away from its harmful actions. It's suggested that this is merely part of a long-term strategy of disruption by the Russian Federation against Ukraine. It started following the initial annexation of Korea, uh, sorry, Crimea, uh, but has increased in frequency since the full-scale invasion of Ukraine in February 2022. There is a blog post available for this, and it's available on the Microsoft website. Now we can move away from Ukraine and the sanctions regimes imposed on Russia and look at things a little close at home and possible worrying times for the Financial Conduct Authority. But first, the Financial Conduct Authority has updated its fines page for the 2022 calendar year. While it will certainly have to go some to beat the record-breaking total of £905,219,078 levelled in levied in 2015, so far the Financial Conduct Authority has issued fines totalling £10,117,000 three hundred and sixty pounds in 2022. The, la uh, the longest journey, etc., etc., starts with a single step. The next story is a bit of an odd one, and it doesn't really fit into a podcast about financial crime, but it does relate to something else which dropped into my inbox, so I thought it would be worth throwing in here. The Unite Trades Union, which represents some employees of the Financial Conduct Authority, has announced that its membership has voted in favour of taking industrial action in a dispute with its employer over, uh, over changes to pay and conditions. This is an historic decision and may mark a turbulent time for the regulator, especially as so much of its staff expertise is attractive to the private sector looking to employ those with experience of the regulator. Anyway, something which I think may be worth mentioning against the backdrop of this decision is a blog post raising the issue of employee depression as a novel corporate risk factor. This is an FCPA blog post, and I'd recommend that anybody listening read the FCA, FCPA blog posts when they come out. The post was by Richard Cassin, who is the blog's founder and editor-at-large, and it sets the discussion against the backdrop of the pandemic and the increase in depression caused by the unprecedented stress of living and working with COVID-19. Frankly, I think there may be something in this idea. Poor conditions of employment and a sense of not feeling valued at work can generate stress and related feelings of alienation and depression. This may come from a number of factors, but pay cuts at a time of rising inflation and a cost of living crisis, together with compromised appraisal processes, may lead to an unhappy workforce with associated loss of productivity. The Financial Conduct Authority might do well to bear this in mind. Now we turn to a more international perspective again, and we look at the International Monetary Fund, which has published a financial sector assessment of the United Kingdom. It's produced a series of reports and technical notes relating particularly to the United Kingdom's financial sector under its, that is the IMF's, financial sector assessment program. The reports and technical notes cover a range of issues, many of which fall outside the remit of this podcast, but one has particular relevance, namely the technical note, some forward-looking cross-sectoral issues. This technical note covers financial integrity and stability, anti-money laundering and combating terrorist financing, together with the risks posed by cyber attacks. Uh, attacks. 
The technical note provides that the United Kingdom faces significant threats from money laundering in the shape of the use of the jurisdiction from transnational organised crime, overseas corruption and tax crimes which seem particularly accentuated by the, department, uh, by the departure of the United Kingdom from the European Union and also the COVID-19 pandemic. These expose... Uh, these expose sect operatives to particular risk from money laundering, especially by use of crypto assets. I'm not entirely sure any of this could come as a real surprise, so there does seem to be a, a sense of stating the obvious. Importantly, however, whether the United Kingdom is suited to responding to these threats, the technical note does state that the UK anti-money laundering and counter-terrorist financing authorities have demonstrated what it describes as a deep and robust experience in assessment and understanding of such risks. The technical note does advise that specialist technical tools should be leveraged, such as big data and machine learning, to analyse such as cross-border payments. The technical note suggests that the FCA... Uh, number, the FCA's number of on-site inspections, which it notes to be fewer than 200 per year, is not sufficient given the risks which the 22,000 supervised entities within the United Kingdom are exposed to. This is because many of those supervised entities identify as being high or medium risk. The report provides, therefore, that there should be access to data from supervised entities coupled with robust technological Analytical tools, as well as leveraging skilled persons, will contribute to addressing the challenges of effective risk-based supervision. Additionally, in relation to crypto assets, uh, crypto assets, the technical note advises that the Financial Conduct Authority should ensure that those firms engaged in crypto assets continue with a robust approach to registration, together with ensuring that they have sufficient information about the parties involved in crypto asset transactions. By doing this, they'll be able to assess the risk associated with such market transactions. The technical note concludes on this point that robust enforcement action uh, over uh, supervised entities should continue to contribute to a strong anti-money laundering and counter-terrorist financing compliance culture. Uh, as well as highlighting the risks which are posed to the United Kingdom from its prominence as a financial services sector, the technical note also provides the United Kingdom with a good deal of praise for certain things which it does which represent good practice. First, the technical note contends that the United Kingdom remains a global leader in promoting entity transparency. To support this analysis, it cites the People with Significant Control Register and the associated reporting obligations which are imposed on supervising entities when it comes to reporting discrepancies between the register and information obtained through customer due diligence. The technical note also cites the trust registration system, which collects beneficial ownership information of trusts created within the United Kingdom. However, it does conclude that, with a note of caution that legislative time should be made available for the Overseas Entities Bill which will give the public access to beneficial ownership information of foreign entities owning United Kingdom properties. This is particularly prescient, particularly prescient in the current climate with the Russian invasion of Ukraine and the obscure ownership of expensive properties in London. The final thing worth noting in relation to financial crime is that the United Kingdom is identified as a willing and constructive cooperator internationally when economic crimes need to be investigated. The United Kingdom has compelling public and private partnerships for the exchange of financial information and intelligence, 
together with robust confiscation, asset recovery and targeted financial sanctions frameworks. However, the United Kingdom is encouraged to engage with both Crown dependencies and British overseas territories to see that they have published the beneficial ownership registers as a central concern uh, to support uh, foreign criminal investigations. Specifically in relation to cyber attacks or cyber risks, the technical note identifies that given the importance of the financial services provision to the United Kingdom, both domestically and globally, because of its status as a hub for international finance, it's vital to protect from the risks of a cyber event. A cyber event targeted either at a financial institution itself or at a third-party service provider could result in a traumatic systemic event for banks and financial service providers in the UK and beyond. That said, the UK's regulatory framework for responding to cyber events is principles-based and outcomes-focused, reflecting international good practice. However, given the evolving nature of cybercrime, the technical note recommends the, the following as highly desirable to strengthen cyber risk management. First, any changes to the operational resilience framework need to be made timely and consistently to ensure appropriate and even implementation across regulated entities. Secondly, the supervisor should enhance existing practices with on-site assessment to verify operational effectiveness of firm cybersecurity controls. Thirdly, the technical note argues that the cyber event reporting requirements provide insufficiently specific guidance on incident reporting, which may lead to underreporting of incidents when they happen. Fourthly and finally, in addition to the other recommendations, penetration testing could be enhanced where it accords with CBEST guidelines so that cybersecurity weaknesses can be readily identified in the financial services firm's digital infrastructure. This is important since it helps firms avoid, for example, risks associated with contagion from compromised systems, data breaches and regulatory sanction. Certainly, the technical note is worth reading in full, especially if you work in cybersecurity and anti-money laundering and terrorist financing. In addition to this technical note, I would also recommend the report Detailed Assessment of Observance of Insurance Core Principles issued by the International Association of Insurance Supervisors. This is interesting for anyone with an interest in the insurance sector, but also for those uh, interested in seeing some technical explanations of the FCA's role in combating financial crime generally. We now look at bribery and corruption convictions. News of a big success for the US Department of Justice this week with the conviction of former Goldman Sachs Managing Director Roger Ng, Ng uh, on charges of bribery and money laundering. The criminal activity concerns actions Ng took through roles with Goldman and its subsidiaries through One Malaysia Development Bahad. One MDB is the Malaysian state-owned investment vehicle designed to benefit Malaysia and its people. Ng and his co-conspirators laundered money and misappropriated funds from One MDB, as well as making bribery payments to 12 Malaysian and United Arab Emirates government officials, which was, of course, contrary to the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act 1977. Ng and his co-conspirators laundered their criminal proceeds through the U.S. financial system. They amassed enough artworks, jewellery and high-end fashion items to make a Russian oligarch blush, 
but perhaps most fittingly, and in an example of dramatic irony that would make Sophocles proud, they provided funding for the Leonardo DiCaprio film The Wolf of Wall Street. The Department of Justice press release is available on its website. In news of bribery and corruption close at home in the UK, the Crown Prosecution Service has issued a press release detailing sentences handed down following the trial of a number of executives and corporations involved in various schemes of so-called fresh air contracts between Coca-Cola enterprises and various companies engaged in work related to maintenance. Over the course of a number of years, Noel Corey, who, is a senior who was a senior manager for CCE, that is Coca-Cola Enterprises, received bribes from Gary Haynes and Peter Kinsella, together with corporations for which they worked, namely WABGS Limited, formerly Bulting Group Limited, Tritech Systems Limited, and Electron Systems Limited. The bribes were given in return for fresh air or fake maintenance contracts for electrical work at Coca-Cola's bottling plants, and in the hope that legitimate contracts will be awarded for genuine work for CCE by Corrie. Over the course of almost a decade, Corrie received bribes with an estimated value of £1.5 million, which included cash payments, tickets for sporting and entertainment events, and a sponsorship deal involving his local football club, Droylsden FC. Corrie and Haynes each received 20-month suspended sentences, while Kinsella received a 12-month suspended sentence. Each company involved in the active bribery offences was fined for breach of the Failure to Prevent Offence under Section 7 of the Bribery Act 2010. The companies admitted that they'd failed to put in place adequate procedures to prevent bribery, which is the defence to the Section 7 offence. The BBC reports that Corrie has had to sell the family home and sacrifice his pension pot to repay CCE, the victim in all of this, for its losses on the fresh air contracts. We now look at competition and linked to bribery and corruption stories, competition for the Transparency International Organisation. The well-known and much-vaunted international organisation Transparency International may have a new competitor in the global anti-corruption stakes with the announcement this week that a new corruption index, the Corruption Risk Forecast, or CRF, has been launched to help corporates and individuals in corruption risk management. The CRF, which is a joint venture between the European Centre for Anti-Corruption and State Building and the Centre for International Private Enterprise, aims to provide a data-driven approach to anti-corruption risk assessments to those seeking to engage in business with particular states. The CRP uses indices to assess corruption indicators. For example, the Index of Public Integrity has components which measure administrative transparency, budget transparency and judicial independence. By having regard to the assessment measures against data from these components and from those of each index, corporations and individuals would be able to measure the risk of business in a particular country where, for example, there is no anti-bribery legislation, uh, the sexual risk of operating with, uh, within certain business sectors, and so on. The data-rich approach of the CRF operates in contrast to the Corruption Perceptions Index produced by Transparency International, which is reliant on perceptions of corruption rather than facts or data. The CRF is free and can be accessed on the CRF website. Just search for Corruption Risk Forecast. Sticking with corruption, 
Uh, this week, the International Monetary Fund has published a report called Crypto Corruption and Capital Controls Cross-Country Correlations, All the Cs. Now, this report has highlighted the link between crypto and corruption. As ever with these reports, it starts with the borderline cliched references to the opportunities presented by crypto, as well as the risks which their pseudonymity present for illicit transactions in the form of money laundering and, from the perspective of this report, bribery. The authors, though they note a caution in their principal conclusion given the size of the sample used for assessment, nevertheless indicate that crypto asset usage is significantly and positively associated with corruption and capital controls. Consequently, there's an urgent need, so the report concludes, to implement regulation of crypto assets. Uh, taking a wait-and-see or laissez-faire approach may be too little, too late. The report does not make recommendations for regulation, that it's not its remit, but it does rather feel that the report has solved the problem and that details should be left to others. However, they do at least suggest that the know-your-customer strategies also used in money laundering could have some part to play. As to how we address the broader forms of regulation of crypto assets, we saw in last week's Financial Crime Weekly that there is little pan-national uniformity of approach. The EU proposes one approach, and other organisations and sovereign nations favour other approaches. It's a messy situation, but one thing which we can say for certain is that the regulation of crypto assets is certainly on the policy agenda, even if its form is still up for grabs. A couple more stories left this week. We look at uh, a piece of interesting research which has been published by UK Finance, uh, which results from a survey undertaken as part of its Take 5 to Stop Fraud campaign. The research found that under 35s are more likely than older age groups to be targeted by impersonation scammers. An impersonation scammer will typically contact the victim by voice call or instant messaging, pretending to be a person or organisation the victim can trust. Quite often, this will be a legitimate business with which the victim has a relationship, e.g. a phone bank provider, uh, sorry, a phone provider, a bank, a government agency, with tax authorities being a popular one, or it could even be, away from business, a family member. A tried and tested script will then be given a run-through with the aim of convincing the victim that they are genuine, which, according to the UK finance research, seems to work. It reports that 71% of 18- to 34-year-olds had been contacted by an impersonation scammer, with 73% of those contacted being convinced to provide funds or personal information. This data is shocking, especially as the research indicates a high, an apparently high level of confidence among those interviewed in their ability to spot a scammer. Clearly, a greater level of fraud literacy is needed among the young, and my advice is that the earlier we start with this education, the better. My children, all of whom are of school age, frequently receive unsolicited calls. When I look up the numbers, they're always associated with fraudsters. Thankfully, my children have more sense than to answer these calls after being urged time after time to be suspicious of any call or message from an unrecognised number. The problem is, the victims have to be alert every time, whereas the scammer needs only to convince us once. The odds are slightly stacked in their favour. And finally, this week... In a coordinated report issued by three EU agencies, the European Banking Authority, 
the European Insurance and Occupational Pensions Authority and the European Securities and Markets Authority, the risk to the EU's economic well-being are highlighted. While some of the risks might have been expected, particularly the geopolitical risks from the Russian invasion of Ukraine and continued mutations of the COVID-19 virus, other risks posed by cyber attacks and financial crime are also flagged by the joint report. The report urges financial institutions across the European Union to focus efforts on cyber resilience, especially in light of the invasion of Ukraine, which has triggered a rise in state-sponsored cyber attacks globally. The issue has been accentuated by the pandemic, which witnessed a shift to remote working and an increase in connected activities in employment, especially in financial services and beyond. Thus, it is more important than ever that technology and its safeguards are rigorous and up-to-date to reduce the potential for disruptive cyber attacks to exploit the connected nature of financial services. That's it for this week's exhaustingly lengthy Financial Crime Weekly podcast. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and you'll hear from me all being well next week. <laughs>